0: You can be opening your Bibles Acts 17. Uh, Pastor Bobby made that announcement, and I I want you to make sure you heard it. Tomorrow night, uh, Cornerstone Church, you need to be there starting at 630. Uh, Churches from around Augusta County meet and have been praying every month. And this is the last prayer meeting because the next thing we're going to do is hit the bricks and try to put the gospel in every home in Augusta County. And uh, so that'll be awesome. Yes, praise the Lord for that. And uh, uh, so I I appreciate that. Man, I don't know what's going on, bro. You can turn off my monitors. Maybe that'll help. Um, Anyway, uh, so please do that. And how many of you have uh, what's known as a smartphone? I'm a dumb user, but I got a smartphone. All right. Go to your web browser and type in bless every home and then sign up. All right. What that does, it's going to ask your address. It's going to ask your email. And it will give you 40 homes around, up to 40 homes around your home, that you can begin to pray for those people. And if we're going to take the gospel, we got to do it on our knees. That's that's the first place, right? So this is a. They'll send you at least a weekly email to remind you to pray. It is a way to pray for your neighbors. Uh, we do that, and I've been able to be in contact with, uh, make physical contact with about three of them. Um, but uh, you you put punch a. Uh, a red light when you, when you have been praying. When you are able to make contact, you can go to yellow. And if you ever get to share the gospel with them, which is uh, something you would want to do, you get to move it over to green. And, and uh, they will supply the data to us about how many of you guys are praying. But we want to be doing that for the rest of this month especially. We're also in the midst of 40 days of prayer and fasting before we go do this. Um, not everybody's fasting 40 days, but you ought to fast sometime in here for some period of time uh, and uh, be in prayer for that coming up. That, that, I cannot overemphasize that, and I don't have time to, to overemphasize it today, but I want to make sure um, you are hearing that. Well, we're in Acts 17 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 16. and uh, Wow, I did put to the last verse here. Um, and, and There's really about four different sermons or themes that uh, I could pick in here. And I think I'm going to hit about three of them at least, uh, but I'm, I'm going to try not to get bogged down in any one of them uh, at all. But I, but I'd like to start by telling a story because uh, this this passage opens up with something unusual happening in with Paul, and that is he's by himself in a strange city that he maybe he'd never been to before. I don't I can't say that with certainty, but pretty much he's gone on. He's in Athens, and he's waiting on Timothy and Silas to come to him because. It, Paul had to get out of the last city so that he, you know, he was the guy that everybody's looking for. So if he left, it left Paul, uh, Titus and, and uh, Timothy and Silas an opportunity to minister there. And he's waiting for them to get there. And he starts looking around where he is. And he's paying attention to what was happening. And then later on, he gives a sermon in that place that begins where the people are and takes them to the resurrection of Christ. And it's a, it's a beautiful progression. It's a lot of verses... It's a big story, and I could have done a verse at the time or did the whole big story, and hopefully uh, 30 minutes or less today. And I know that would get you out earlier than you've ever been out since I've been here, but that's still my prayer every week. Lord, help me not to waste too much time. But I want to I start by telling a, a story that, uh, that, that happened to me that, that refers to being able to speak somebody's language. Because when you go to witness to someone, I grew up in church. You know, and if you're my age or older, you know what the sawdust trail is, right? You know what the mourner's bench is, don't you? You know, we we talk, we have phrases like that. We even say, get saved, and you're lost. You try that with a guy that doesn't know anything about God, anything about Christ, and you're just over his head talking a foreign language. And so what I see in this passage is Paul, he he looked at his the community in which he was and figured out how best to talk to them. In their language, in ways they understood, and that's where he went. Now, Paul says later, in, in when he writes the book of Galatians, that that uh, that well, not in Galatians, in, in, in I think in, Cor- in to Corinth, he said, "I didn't come to you with with wise words and flowery speech, but I, I know one thing: Christ and Him crucified." And that's what Paul knows. But he wants to get there, and he needs to take you where you are to getting there. Well sometimes that can happen for us by accident you can identify with people even when you didn't mean to every once in a while pastors like myself pastor Bobby's done this many times and others uh, you'll get a call from the funeral home someone who has passed away they've not a member of any church maybe never even been to church and the family though wants you know a pastor to do the funeral so they'll call and say hey would you be willing you know and 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 so usually because the pastors know guys in the funeral home, they know who they can call, and and so I said yes. And when we, we lived in Tidewater, I did this one time, and the funeral was on a day in the middle of summer, middle of July, and my family they were going on to Virginia Beach to have a day at the beach, and I said I'll catch up with you. I'll take my bathing suit, put it in the car, and so I'm wearing a black suit because these people don't know me from Adam's house cat, and and uh, sorry that's a phrase of mine growing up, but. Um, but it was a graveside service, and so I get there, steaming hot. The, the funeral uh, uh, home had brought in coolers of water and ice for the people, and I don't remember much about the person, but the family was was uh, what I'd call down-home folk. I, I, I've got worse phrases for them, but they remind me of my family. I, I used to say I couldn't watch Jerry Springer on TV because it made me homesick, but... um. Because half my family's in jail, and the other half put them there. They're you, the cop or a crook, in my family. So, but I, I, I'm not saying they were bad. They just were, you know, good regular folk, and they needed this guy. So I go in there. I got on black suit. I'm sweating like, you know, terribly, um, and and I'm doing this funeral, and there's a 14 year old girl. Let her grandparents and elders sit under the tent, and she's out there, and it's 98 degrees, 95 degrees, and I see her do that, and whoop out she goes. So everybody, oh, you know, you stop. And, and so she's passed out, and I did this. I reached in my pocket. I said, hold on, y'all. I pull out my bandana, and I flipped it open. I said, dip this in that cooler of ice and put it on her head to cool her off. And so they did. And she recovered, and, uh, you know, I finished up, and then I went to the beach. and was with my family. But at the end of that funeral, one of those young men who talked like this, you know what I mean, he walked up and he said, yeah, we didn't know you from anybody. You came up here to do this funeral. But when you pull that bandana out your pocket, I looked at my mom and said, that's one of us. <laughs> I didn't mean to identify with them, but I did, you know. Not that I didn't mind. I mean, I don't mind that, but it was, it was accident, but." Sometimes we, we're afraid to talk to people because we think we got to know church words. People don't want to pray out loud because you think you got to use church words. I grew up hearing that. It sort of comes naturally to me. And I would rather hear somebody, this is the first time they ever tried to pray, pray, than listen to me try to be flowery in my praying. You know what I mean? I learned from a good friend that God doesn't need my, my, my uh, right attitude or right language. Just cry out to God, you know. One of those prayers where you hit your knees in the hall and slide up to the side of the bed while you're praying, Dear God, I need you. We, we need that kind of talk and prayer. And when we talk to other people, we need to talk to them in a way they understand it. And so we see Paul doing that. So here's what I want you to take home with you. Uh, because what I'm really going to get to is their idol worship. And, and when we make a God in our own image, or making a God in our own image, it creates a worship of a false god. You say, well, hey, you're in a Baptist church. We ain't got an idol for 10,000 miles from us. Well, I wouldn't be so sure of that. We're going to look at this together. So if you'll stand up, I'm going to begin there in verse 16. I know it's about 16, 17, 18 verses, um, but we'll get through it. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now when you and I look at that, we're saying, no, they're the ones worshiping foreign divinities. But remember, we got to put ourselves where Paul was, and that's what Paul's going to do here. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, "May, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Deo- uh, Deo- Dionysus, yes, can't get it out, and the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others. With them, let's pray, Father. We thank you for this sermon. Uh, we know it as the sermon at Mars Hill, and what Paul did, and and Lord, um, uh, we we can see what Paul is doing here, and and uh, what he's actually learning here as we as we look in other writings that he uh, that he puts out later, um, how he learned to preach Christ and and and, uh, and 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 to and to be able to present the gospel everywhere he went. So, Lord, may we take some good principles for this for ourselves in Jesus' name. We ask that you would, uh, uh, first of all, ask for myself, Lord, that you would anoint my lips and my heart and my mind, that uh, my thoughts would be your thoughts, my words would be your words, and, and that, that they would not come from me but from you. And, Father, we thank you. And I, I ask that you would open the ears of the listener, that they would hear the word that God has to, wants to plant into their heart. And, God, we bind our enemy. He comes against us strongly. He will continue to do so, and he's going to get even worse about it. And if we're not putting on the armor and fighting the battle on our knees, we are definitely going to lose. So, Lord, we know that you are greater as he that's that's in us than he that's in the world. And, Lord, we thank you that we have no righteousness of our own, but it all comes from you and returns to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Y'all be seated. Well, to jump right in, first of all, Paul, this passage begins that he's observing the obvious. So many times there's things around us that we don't notice. But once we are aware of it, we notice it everywhere, right? Here in the, the, the first verses that I'm using in verse 16, Paul is waiting for them in Athens and says his spirit is provoked. Now, that word provoked, uh, it can mean to stir up. Um, it can mean uh, to, to exasperate or provoke. Uh, it means actually the, the actual definition is to sharpen alongside. It's, it's a Greek word that has para at the beginning, Para means beside. The, the title of the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the comforter who comes alongside. So this is when you are just rubbing something and knocking off rough parts, and it's getting sharper and sharper, and you're feeling it more and more. It, it's the literal meaning, and figuratively it means that's annoying me, something's bothering me. I was cutting the grass a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't see the hornet's nest. I'm not sure that I actually hit it, but it hit me. I got some, I'm just, you know... Free as a bird, and I felt like somebody had stabbed me in the back of the neck with an ice pick. So I just turned for home, screaming. My wife's like, "What's wrong? Something got me." And uh, and thankfully, I'm not allergic to those kind of things. And and uh, but I found that nest uh, Friday. I'm gonna kill it here, maybe today. But uh, um, gotta wait till night. They're all in there. Throw gas on them. It'll be okay. But um. But but. Uh, but that's what it means to sharpen, to annoy, to, to provoke. And Paul is in Athens. He starts looking around and going, look at all these idols. Now, as a Jewish man, that obviously frustrates him because you make no graven image of God. But as a Christian now, it really aggravates him because they don't even know who God is. And so that will come out later uh, when Paul begins to preach. So as Paul's waiting for, for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him, he's just walking around. Athens, observing the culture, and the text is careful to let us know that as he saw these idols, he begins to talk to people in the marketplace. He's already been in the synagogue. He stays in the synagogue, talks to religious people. That's Paul's uh, method. You know, he always uses that method. He goes to people that already are kind of know God, and he finds there uh, people that the Holy Spirit is working with uh, because they're going to talk to him more about it and leads them to Christ, and that's how he starts the churches. But now he's in a, a very pagan place. There was a synagogue there, but there's also many idols. Somebody said in Athens in those days you would run into a god before you ran into a man. They had thousands, literally tens of thousands of idols set up in the city. In fact, you know, you heard me read it, there was even one to the unknown god. and That's how Paul starts his sermon. There, there was a man in ancient Athens. They wanted to make sure they sacrificed all the gods and he he gathered thousands of sheep black and white sheep and released them and whichever shrine they laid down in front of they would slaughter them there and offer a sacrifice and the ones that didn't stop in front of an, an, a particular one that's when they erected to the unknown god because a sheep didn't go to one of the icons that's where it comes from and so Paul is watching all this and he's provoked in his spirit and and Paul is facing two major belief systems, and really there are only two, uh, gods and everybody else's. But, but the major ones in Athens, it's named Epicureans and Stoics. And just so, just so you know, uh, the one thing they have in common is they believe the body is evil, that this physical body is evil. So the two reactions to that is, one, okay, do what you want to do. Uh, and hopefully it doesn't hurt, but just, you know, have fun. And the other one is don't do anything. You got to just beat the body down. And so we get Spartans and Athenians out of that. Uh, Spartans are the Stoics, and the Athenians are, are a little more hedonistic. And so it, it, they believe that the body was evil. It's just a blob of tissue, but it's an evil thing. And so you start talking about Jesus coming back from the dead, they go, huh? It says in 1 Corinthians, 1 uh, 23 that the preaching of the cross is, is to those who are perishing, foolish. It's, it's foolish to the Jews uh, and a stumbling block to the Jews and foolish to the Greeks. Now, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because the Messiah is not supposed to suffer and die in their mind, even though the Old Testament said that. That's why they went to the Old Testament, Paul and the rest of the apostles, proved in the Old Testament that the Messiah must suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. So Paul's message is not just about the cross, it goes all the way to the resurrection. So many times today we talk about the cross and never come back around to the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. If he didn't get up from the dead, he ain't who he said he was. See what I'm saying? So he always came to that, and that's the sticking point, both with the Jewish people and the Athenians. This is the first place, though, where Paul's talking in synagogue and they're not creating a riot. Now, I don't know if they were more open-minded... Uh, or what was going on there, but but as he does that, they they don't get too uh, too upset. So the Epicureans were seeking pleasure, Stoics are seeking discipline of mind and body, so they wouldn't be influenced by it. And as Paul's looking at all these idols, he is, he's kind of wondering what in the world is going on. So he starts, it says, so he's talking to people in the marketplace. You know how you learn your culture? Ask a question and then shut up. I ask questions and then give the answers, but... People like me talk a lot. We're never quiet. We're just reloading. And so sometimes I have to be reminded of that, and I stop, have to stop myself. But, but Paul starts talking to them, and he's listening to how they believe and what they think. Now, Paul's a very learned man, very uh, uh, smart man. So we're reading this, you and I, and I don't know about you, but I'm thinking we don't have any idols around here. But the more I think about it, the more I realize we do. Let me give you a simple definition of an idol. You know the technical one. An idol is an image or representation of a God to whom you worship. But let me give you a different one. This is a more practical one. It's not a dictionary one. When you've got nothing else to do, what do you do? Where does your mind go? When, when you have the opportunity to do anything you want to do, what do you do? Even for a moment or for an extended period of time. And I'm not saying it's wrong to think, hey, i got a break, I can go fishing or anything else. But how often does your mind, man, i got an opportunity to talk to God. I've got an opportunity to learn more about God. I've got an opportunity to finally catch up on this thing that I've been wanting to do when it comes to come to God. And I would say the thing that occupies your mind the most is your idol. I would think, I, I, I guess I'm pretty sure that's true of me, so... So I would think it was true of more than just me. See, we believe that idols are a thing of another place and another time. Or we relegate idols today to a third world type situation with an ignorant population somewhere else. But all of us have idols. We constantly are making idols for ourselves. I'll I'll, I'll name a few which is always dangerous because I might not hit yours. It might be a favorite sports team. Go Tigers. (laughs) They're not an idol, but I do enjoy it. A celebrity of any stripe. doesn't matter if it's a religious celebrity or a secular celebrity of music or TV or movies. It could be a preacher. It could be a teacher of some sort. We make up our, our own religion. It's our personal preferences and desires. We make idols out of those, especially in church. We make up our own religion with our own sacraments. The religion of secularism, the sacrament of that religion is abortion. That's what they sacrifice to their God of materialness. Where there are no absolutes. Let us offer our babies to the God Moloch. From the Old Testament. As a sacrifice for our belief that life is meaningless. And there is no God. Except the one we create. But we do that instead of learning what God is like in all the scripture. And bowing and worshiping him. So how can we, let, how can we influence a culture when we let the culture influence us? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is just your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God is. Is that what we're doing, or are we just doing what the world tells us to do? As the people of God, we need to be the people of God. And by the way, those verses really knock saying a prayer and going to heaven in the head, doesn't it? Present your body a living sacrifice. That's a a whole commitment. It's an old joke, but nothing's ever spoke that truth more to me than the pig and the chicken walking by the church. The sign says, ham and egg breakfast this Saturday. And the chicken said, hey, we ought to make a donation. And the pig said, for you, that's a donation. For me, that is total commitment. (laughs) Romans 12, 1 and 2 calls for a total commitment. To lay down on a hot altar and let our life be consumed by the flame of God. Right? And anything less will not do in his kingdom. We need to carefully consider what we put ahead of absolute worship to an absolute God so that we can repent and return to Him, because we have these idols and, and some modern idols. And basically, Psalm 10, 4 says, "In the pride of the face, of His face, the wicked does not seek Him. All His thoughts are, there is no God." And so we make idols of our pleasure, whatever our hobby is, or some chemical, or some uh, some experience. We make idols of our of our jobs. We become workaholics and. That is true of pastors as well as anybody else. And You say, well, you don't understand. Yeah, I do. Because there's a difference between the urgent and the important. And if you're always doing the urgent, you'll never do the important. If you do the important, you recognize the urgent for what it is, a temporary urgency that you either deal with or say, you know, that's not going to matter. Always ask yourself, what difference will this make in 10 years and realize that there's at least a, a more than a billion Chinese people right now that it doesn't affect at all, and who don't care. Why is it so urgent? I, I did an interview with a businessman in Suffolk once, Christian businessman. I was doing it for a class, and, and I interviewed him. And he said, whenever the pressure gets so big, and i got so much to do, I tell my secretary, I'll be back in 10 minutes. And he walks two blocks up the street to the cemetery, and he walks around the cemetery, he said, and I look at all the tombstones of all those indispensable people. And I get a good perspective, and I come back, and I get my job done. We make idols of our job. We make idols of our hobby, hunting, fishing, you name it. I always go to the men. I've read somewhere, preacher, be careful not just always talk about men's stuff. Well, I don't know much about women's stuff, so whatever you like. Uh, I'm not a woman, so I don't know. I should ask my wife, huh? We sometimes make idols of our family. Where I I saw one of those. uh, It's called a meme, in case you're not Remember that? That's a picture with a funny little saying underneath. And the meme was a little kid playing Little League Baseball. And it said, Dad, there's a .00024% chance your kid will ever make it to the majors. There's a 100% chance he's going to die and face God. Take him to church. What's more important anyway and what's more urgent? If God wants him to be a major league player, he'll be a major league player. You don't have to abandon God for that. We, We make... We make a God out of money, earning it, using it, spending it, whatever. And if we don't have enough, we'll just use the credit card. And by the way, I think it's Finland. I just saw an article a couple of weeks ago. They are now putting the identifying chip off your card in your hand or your head so that you can just scan your hand. That is actually happening now. Well, I I can't chase that rabbit too far. but Here's a big one. social media. People live and die by Facebook and Instagram, and there's some new ones that I, I, I've i heard the name, but I don't know what they are, so I hate to even say them. Snapchat and Twitter, all these things. I, I, look, I have a report on my phone of how much I've used it that way. And a lot of days, I, li, I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts or videos uh, that, that are available, and so mine registers pretty high sometimes because I'll plug it in and That'll be in one ear while I'm doing something else. But but there are people, you don't have your phone. What you? our, our, our kids, people younger than me, can can barely believe that when I was a teenager, you had to tell your parents where you were going and where you were going to be back because they couldn't get in touch with you until you could get back to a phone. Because <laughs> they were all connected by a wire to some building. And you're going, could I use your phone? No, we don't let people use our phone, you know. I've been in trouble many times for being late and didn't. Well, you could have called me. I didn't have a phone. I couldn't get to it. Now you don't have an excuse, right? And in our church, we have idols. I'm going to just name three because then those we can get all of it pastor, programs, and pews. We got a favorite teacher, favorite preacher, favorite deacon, favorite whatever under pastor. And we worship them rather than Christ. I mean less than nothing as an individual whose steward is to the kingdom of God unless I'm on an altar totally letting him use me as a vessel. I, I know I have worth in Christ, but I'm just saying that that doesn't come from me. That comes from God. And the same is true of you. Apart from him, you're less than nothing. With him, you're everything. And you can be, you, you can be used in God's kingdom. But we don't worship men. We worship the God of the Bible. And if I ever lead you to worship me you ought to, you know, beat me up, shoot me, fire me, do something. But I want to lead you to worship God. We worship our programs, which is idolatry, because we come up with a great idea in a program and ask God to bless it. Why would God bless another god that's not him? He wants us on our knees as him, God, you got to move. You got to act, you got to do something for us cuz we can't do it. Because we can program it out pretty well. And then we ask God to bless it. One is blasphemy, to ask him to do that. And it's idolatry because we are worship the program rather than the God that we serve. And then I said, the pew, that just means the pulpit, the carpet, a Sunday school room. We've been in this room for 40 years and we're not leaving. In our last church, we had a small auditorium and we figured out we could get more people in if we took out the pews and put in chairs. And there was one Sunday school class that really wanted one of those pews. So he put it in their Sunday school class. And later on, they outgrew their classroom. And they went to the, the minister of education and said, can we get a new classroom because we're over full? And he said, yeah, but you can't take the pew with you because the next room, won't, it won't fit. They said, never mind, we'll stay. And the pew was made out of press wood. I mean, it was just, when we t- started taking them apart, we were like, why didn't anybody even like these? Man, it's press board. They were the cheapest things I ever saw. We we broke them up so people couldn't make idols out of them. Except the ones those ladies won. We gave it to them. But. And we make, we make idols out of our plaques. Look what I did. Just saying. We, we do have idols. Well, Paul comes to speak to these people. And he's done all this reconnaissance. And we see here, they bring him to the Areopagus saying... Tell us more about this new teaching because what you're saying is strange to our ears. And up there in verse 18 it says, What does this babbler wish to say? That word babbler means seed picker. And that's literally what that word means in Greek. In other words, we call nitpickers, nit pickers, right? You ever pick some nits? They're doing this. They said, Who is this guy? He's on this little this little thing. He's a babbler. It's crazy. Come, Come talk to us about that. And then it says... Those people's idols was, was knowledge. These philosophies that were there, the Epicureans, the Stoics, out of that came Gnosticism, which made a, a, the knowledge a god. Just like Satan told Eve in the garden, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Paul and the other apostles, the rest of the New Testament, have to fight this Gnostic heresy um, that we somehow can gain knowledge when the knowledge we have came from heaven to us in the person of Christ. So the people of Athens lived only to hear or tell some new thing. And when Paul speaks, they minimize him as a babbler and consider his message to be strange, which it was to their ears. Because their philosophy did not allow a resurrected body. And I already told you why. Because they thought it was evil. Why in the world would you resurrect a body which is evil? To the Jews, a stumbling block because a Messiah had to suffer and die. How can God put on flesh and suffer and die? And it just blew their minds. And so, to believe in Christ was to totally wipe away all other religions. And that's still true today, but we don't present Christ that way. We present Christ like the Hindus like to do it. A Hindu is a hard person to tell about Christ because they'll go, sure, add him in. Because they got like 300 million gods. Did you know that? Like, that's where Hare Krishna, all that mess comes from. I I I, I thought about copying out an old song from the 70s. Y'all remember O Buddha? From the Imperials. It's like. It's not going to be a Christian Krishna blowing the trumpet on Judgment Day. We're going to stand before Christ. Right? And these philosophies they had. They, it, it made no sense to them. Because material is evil. Anything physical is evil. So at least they wanted to hear it. And so Paul goes. And he starts preaching. And notice how he starts. Um. In verse uh, 22, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way. You're very religious. When you have idols, you become religious. Do you know that? Idols make a religion. But Paul begins a sermon with this. And then notice what he says in verse 23. For as I pass along, observe the objects of your, of your worship. He lets them know these are the objects of your worship. You're worshiping statues. I found an altar with his inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. I'm going to proclaim him to you. You don't know about him, but I'm fixing to tell you. Is how we'd say it in the South. So what misunderstanding do we have about the reality of who God is? All of us believe that man has fallen, that Christ died to redeem us and make us a new creation. But many people, including Christians, do not believe that man is inherently evil. We believe man's got goodness in himself. He's a good boy. He just needs to come to church. That we're all God's children somehow. Nobody really goes to hell, do they? We're talking about that in Sunday school today. And that we have the power to overcome bad things in our life. And bad habits and evil. Yet the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah 17.9. In Isaiah it says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's Isaiah 64, 6. And a few lines later in verse 7 he says, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. But now that passage goes on to talk that God is the potter and we're the clay and he can remake us. He can take out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And not Those words aren't in that passage. But it talks about God being the potter and he can remold us as we need to be. But here's the point. That we must think of man correctly. That we are fallen and hopelessly lost. And there is nothing in us or about us that that desires God. At all. That's what it says in Romans 3. You you can disagree with me, but I'm going to take you right to Romans. It says there's none who seeks after God. None who does righteousness. Nobody's looking for God. Listen, if you'd rather watch... Monday night football and come to church, you are going to be bored in heaven. If God's not enough for you, I don't know what is. So we got to think about man correctly. He is dead in trespasses and sin. We have no power to get up. We got to think of God correctly. He demands perfection, and the lack of perfection has to be judged. And we got to think of salvation correctly. And that is it's all of grace. That God is paying the price of our sin himself. God is paying himself for our sin. Because God set the price tag, sin, death. And only God could pay that price tag for the rest of us. So he put on flesh and dwelt among us as a man. He emptied himself of, his, of the exercise of his deity. And he won the battle as a man and died in our place on a cross. And then rose on the third day. Day We are hopelessly lost without God, and we desperately need Him, and He redeems us. So Paul's sermon starts where they are, and he takes them where they need to be. <laughs> just in context of that, my granddaughter Leala, our, our daughter Cameron, told us this story the other day. And just so I don't, it, 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 it could be sensitive, so I'm going to read it as I wrote it because I got all the sensitivity out of it. Many of you know my daughter, Cameron, is about to give birth to our third, her third child, our fifth grandchild. And Leala was looking at her mom's belly, I don't know the context, and asked what those stretch marks were. And Cameron told her, they're stretch marks. Now, Leala's three. So Leala said, how did you get those? And Cameron responded, I got them when you were in my belly. They're called stretch marks. To which Leala responded, oh, they're baby stripes. Cameron said, no, they're stretch marks. And Leila responded, no, they're baby stripes. (laughs) Now, Cameron, being my child, wanted her child to know the detail of what stretch marks are. But Leila repeated it in a language she understood and made sense to her, and she wasn't wrong. And sometimes in our desire... To speak a language we understand, we, they miss what we're saying. Paul desires to speak a language that they understood. He acknowledged they're religious. Last week, some of our teenagers were out in the streets and they ran into people and said, I don't want to talk about religion. Exactly, neither do we. We want to talk about a living God who has borne our sin on a cross and wants to adopt us into his family so that he can be with us here and there. We don't have to wait on heaven. Heaven comes to us when we're saved. Paul, one of these people, know a real and personal God. And as we look at the sermon, six big points he makes, and I'll run through these. He talks about the true God. God God is the creator, not the created. They're worshiping idols created by the hands of men. He said the real God created all of this for us. God is Lord, and he makes the rules. You don't get to make up your own God. God does not dwell in or need buildings built by human hands. Because no man can build a house that can contain him. And God doesn't need us to serve him. Since he is the source of all life to all mankind as well as everything on earth that lives and breathes. He doesn't need us. He uses us. He'll let us serve him. It is a privilege. I love what David prayed when he took out the offering for the temple. God said, David, you cannot build the temple. you got too much blood on your hands. You're a man of war. And he made David to be a man of war. You've conquered these nations, but you can't build my temple because you're a man of war. David said, well, can I take up the offering? God said, sure. And he told the people, man, we got to bring in your gold, all this stuff so we can get the supplies. My son Solomon will build the temple. And they brought in all this stuff and David prayed. And when he prayed, here's his words. Lord, who am I and who are my people? That we should be allowed to give this generously. Do you understand that? That every dime you give to God is a generous gift of God to allow you to approach Him in His holiness? Every time you pray, it is the grace of an all-powerful God that doesn't strike you dead in your sinful state that He will allow you to speak to Him. We understand that in human rulers where we give them deference, where we even people we don't disagree with, sometimes we'll back up and we'll give them deference for their position. We're talking about an all-powerful, nobody like Him, nobody above Him. He rules everything God And we treat him as if he's meaningless. We are idolaters in our hearts of ourselves. And God made of all men. He made all men out of one man. You see, we don't have different races on this earth. We only got one race. It's called the human race. Because all what we call races came from Adam and then Noah. And when you go far enough back. You say, well, you're a white guy saying that. You don't know what color I am. you never seen me. You just see the house I live in. And one day this house is going to be destroyed. I'm going to go get my new house. Anyway, I won't go down that rabbit trail either. And that God originally wanted us to seek him. You see, these people are worshiping an idol. God is a personal God revealed to us by Jesus who put on flesh and dwelt with us. Real flesh and blood. God wants a relationship. He is a living God who has living children. Remember when Jesus talked about Abraham and Moses and they said, you're not even 30 years old. When did you ever talk to Abraham and Moses? He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Abraham and Moses are still alive. They're, still, they're in heaven. They're fine. They're alive. That's the God we serve. It's a living God, not an idol made of our hands that we worship that can hear us. I was, I was talking about that this 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 morning. I, I think it was Brother Doug there. He 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 mentioned that he was teaching about this in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, you make these things as if they're gods, and then you got to fasten them to the wall with a nail to hold them up. They can't even sit up by themselves. Much less do anything for you. God is a personal God, and God commands us, look at verse 30 and 31, to repent. This is the end of Paul's sermon after he... He said all those things, and you can read the details there yourself. It says the time of ignorance got overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The fact of the resurrection makes Christianity meaningful, and without it it is meaningless. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection isn't true, I'm of all men most miserable. Because if that's not true, Christianity's not true. It hinges on the resurrection. It rises and falls on the resurrection of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 7.10, the Bible says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Think about Judas and Peter. They did the same thing. They both denied Jesus. But the difference is once Judas realized that he had remorse... When Peter realized it, he repented. Remorse is feeling bad about what you did. It's being sorry that you did it. It might even be crying over the fact that you failed. But listen, the road to repentance is already slippery and it's only made more slippery by your tears. What God wants you to do is say, I was wrong and you are right and I'm not going that way anymore. I'm going to walk your path. I'm going to get on the narrow way. I'm going to... Do what you call me to do. Oswald Chambers says all this best. I ask your forgiveness for reading this. This is, if you got my most first highest, you can look up December 7th, read for yourself later again. He said, conviction of sin is one of the rarest things that ever strikes a man. Did you hear that phrase? Conviction of sin is one of the rarest things that ever strikes a man. It is the threshold of an understanding of God. If you don't have conviction of sin, you haven't even. Begun to understand God. Before you can know you need Him, you got to know that you need Him. Okay? That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, He would convict of sin. And when the Holy Spirit rouses a man's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not His relationship with men that bothers Him, but His relationship with God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done evil, In thy sight. That was a quote of David. Conviction of sin, the marvel of forgiveness and holiness are so interwoven that it is only the forgiven man who is a holy man. He proves he is forgiven by being the opposite of what he was. Listen, if your salvation brings about a change in your life, you might ought to go back and check that out. Repentance always brings a man to this point, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work is when a man says that and means it. Anything less than this is remorse for having made blunders. The reflex action of disgust at himself. A man's respectable goodness. But when then the Holy Ghost who produces these agonies... ...begins the formation of the Son of God in the life... The new life will manifest itself in conscience, repentance, and unconscious holiness. Never the other way around. Did you catch that? Conscious repentance, unconscious holiness. It's not conscious holiness and unconscious repentance. It's I know I'm repenting and that's where you got to stay. And then your life will be made holy and you won't even notice. But when you think you're holy, you need to repent. <laughs> Humility is a... Is a is a tottering fence. Where every time you lean on it, it moves. But you got to stay humble before God. You have to stay in a state of repentance. The bedrock of Christianity is repentance. Strictly speaking, a man cannot repent when he chooses. Repentance is a gift of God. The old Puritans used to pray for the gift of tears. If ever you cease to know the virtue of repentance, you are in darkness. Examine yourself and see if you've forgotten how to be sorry. Think about it. In Revelation, seven churches, five of them, he said, you need to repent. I would think that that average probably holds true and maybe has even increased. You see, the unsaved need to repent and come to salvation or else they perish. The backslider needs to repent. And become disciplined and discipled. But the local church has to repent. Or we'll lose our effectiveness in the world. If we go out thinking we're something and they're nothing. If we think any man is not worthy to hear the gospel. If we think that we've got it together and they don't. Then we got to repent. If we think we shouldn't even go. Or why are we doing all this? Friend, the church has two jobs Tell people about Christ and when people come to salvation to help them grow up in him. That's all we got to do. That's our job. And I I, I dare to say I think we, we miss that a lot in a broad perspective here. I'm not like fussing just at Calvary and just saying Christianity as a whole on this particular nation of the United States. We've lost that simplicity. That we're to share Christ and those who come to know him. We're to help them grow up in Him. Well, what can you do about it today? Well, first of all, I'm sure you can get most of it, but evaluate the false idols in your life and then tear down their altars. I and, and well, I'll just let I'll let God talk to you about what I said, because I want I want to let you off the hook a little bit. And I'm not saying you gotta be so, you know, uptight, just squeak when you walk, but We better be conscious of our sin and who God is. And uh, My daddy taught me as a little boy sitting on the bathroom counter while he shaved. Every day you live is one day closer to meeting God face to face. That wasn't his exact words. It's one day closer to being in front of God. My dad had that perspective and he gave it to me. Know the society you live in and reject what's not of God. If there are things in your life it's just like, hey, well, you know, everybody does it. Well, if it's not of God, don't do it. Get rid of that. And then thirdly, I'd say, repent of any known sin, and then ask God to help you know your hidden sin. Did you know you and I can have sin in our hearts that we're not even aware of? Because back to Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I've quoted this before, but the pastor said, I've got to repent of my repentance. We can't even do that right. We need desperately, desperately need God. Van Savner said we've got to get to the point where we're shipwrecked on God and abandoned on His holiness and His purpose.